Section 6 of Gallipoli Diary. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Gallipoli Diary by John Graham Gillum. Section 6, May 4th to 13th, 1915. May 4th, 5th, and 6th. Nothing much to record. Have been very busy these last few days forming a supply depot of my own for the 88th Brigade. I go up to Brigade each day, riding as far as the White Pillars, but go bang across country now and not through Sed El Bar. Our line is quite deep and well dug in now. Firing going on steadily at night. Quite heavy rifle fire, but it is mostly Turkish. I learn that at night he gets the wind up and blazes away at nothing. One or two parties have made sorties, but our machine guns have made short work of them. The division is like one big family party. We all know each other so well now, and one can go through the trying vicissitudes of war with greater vigor if with men who have become intimate friends. The horrible part is losing friends, much worse, I think, than having to go oneself. Good friends leave such a large gap. Tommy seemed pretty cheerful at night on the beach. After dinner we sit outside our biscuit-box houses and have coffee. Not a word. I got some coffee by exchanging jam with a Frenchman the other day, strictly against rules. And, looking out to sea, enjoy some excellent cigars of the commanding officers. Any more for the Arcadian is constantly shouted out by a naval officer on the beach calling those who live at general headquarters who are billeted on the Arcadian to the pinnace. I often wish I could say yes one night and go on board and have a good bath and a whiskey and soda. Tommies play on mouth organs and sing Tommy's tunes. At Lemnos, Tommy was marching round the decks of the transport singing, Who's your lady friend? A few days after, he goes through one of the most sanguinary fights of the war. A week after, he is on the beach with a mouth organ, making a horrible execution of A Little Grey Home in the West. A unique creation, the British Tommy. If he ever does think of death or getting wounded, he always thinks it will be his pal and not he who will get hit, and goes on with his mouth organ, washing his shirt, or writing to his latest girl at the last town he was billeted in. Those with girls are the cheeriest. May 7th. Today we are bombarding Turkish positions heavily, and the village of Krithia preparatory to advancing our lines to the slopes of Achibaba, in the hope of my brigade taking the hill. In the morning I issue at my dump, and after lunch ride with Carver and Sergeant Evans to find our respective brigades. We ride up the west coast across grass and gorse, and arriving at a gully encounter shell fire which is now getting more frequent. We leave our horses with an orderly at this gully and proceed on foot, skirting the edge of the coast. Shells are bursting furiously over Krithia, which is again on fire. We reach a very deep and beautiful gully, which appears to run inland some long way, and we climb down its slopes to the shore. There we find an advanced dressing station to which wounded are continually being brought by stretcher-bearers, or helped along by Royal Army Medical Corps men. 
Several of the wounded are Royal Army Medical Corps also. I inquire at a tent, which is a signal station, of the signal officer in charge, as to the location of 88th Brigade Headquarters, and learn that they are inland. We chat a while to this officer, who appears strangely familiar to me, and at last I place him. I find that I dined with him four years ago at Edgebaston, and his name is Mowat, a Birmingham territorial, in business on his own, which through the war has gone to the winds. He tells me he has been here for four days, and is often troubled by snipers. They had caught one four days previously in a dugout, which, facing the gully, allowed his head and shoulders to appear, giving sufficient room for him to take aim through a screen made by a bush growing in front. The entrance to his dugout was from the cliff side facing the sea, along a passage ten yards in length. He gave himself up, though he had food and water for some days more. As we talk, two wounded limped down the gully through the water, for the bottom of the gully is in parts a foot deep in water, and I question them as to how they were wounded. They reply, either spent bullets or snipers, and that they were hit about a mile further up the gully. We go back, climbing up the cliff, and walk along the cliff's edge to where we had left our horses. A detachment of New Zealanders, I should say about a thousand, are moving slowly in several single files across the gorse to take their place on the left of our line to relieve some Gurkhas, and I have a good opportunity of studying them at close quarters. I am struck by the wonderful physique of the men, all of them in splendid condition. I am rather surprised to see them, for I thought that they were up-country with the Australians. I leave Carver at this point, and Sergeant Evans and I cut across country and, trotting up the track which is now called the West Quithia Road, reach Pink Farm. We go beyond there, find headquarters in a trench, and learn that rations are to be dumped at Pink Farm. We are warned that we should not be riding about there, as we might draw shell-fire. Crithia is getting it terribly hot from our shells, and is well on fire now. We learn that the French have had a check, and that we, in consequence, have been unable to advance. We come back and have a delightful canter all the way back to W Beach. I have a meal, and then with Williams, at dusk, escort rations, this time in limber wagons as well as on pack mules, up the West Crithia Road to Pink Farm, where I find Leslie waiting, and we come back on a limber, I squatting on the rear half and Williams in front. Quite an enjoyable ride. Star shells are now in use, and they go up at odd intervals, poising in the air for a second and then sailing gracefully to earth, illuminating the immediate vicinity. It was fairly quiet all night, just an odd shell or two fired by our fleet at intervals. May 8th. Before breakfast this morning, I am ordered to take 200 rations up to some Lancashire Fusiliers, territorials, who have found themselves in our part of the line. Arriving at Pink Farm, shrapnel begins to come over, and I get the mules under cover of the farm as best I can, and go on to headquarters. I continue to walk along the road, and then cut across the open country to the trench where the brigade are. They are sitting in the trench having breakfast, and tell me that the Lancashire Fusiliers have now gone to the beach. 
Feston of the Border Regiment is now our brigade major, and he asks me to take a message to the field company of engineers attached to the brigade, just behind Pink Farm off the road. As we talk, shrapnel bursts over Pink Farm and to its left, probably trying to get at a battery which is in position there. I take my leave, and on getting back to Pink Farm, I find that one of the Syrian mule drivers has been hit in the stomach by a shrapnel bullet. He is lying on the ground behind the walls of the farm, groaning, and on seeing me cries piteously to me in Russian. I send over to an Indian field ambulance close by, and in a few minutes two native orderlies come running over noiselessly with a stretcher. They stoop down and, with the tenderness of women, lift the wounded boy onto the stretcher and carry him away. We trek back, and on the way I deliver the message to the field company. For transport, we now have little army transport two-wheeled carts, known in the Indian Army as ammunition transport, drawn by two little Indian mules. These are in camp near the lighthouse between W Beach and V Beach. Delightful place this, and most interesting. The orderliness of everything is astonishing. The quaint little tents, oblong with sloping sides, are arranged in neat rows. The inhabitants are surely the most cleanly people on earth. Here I see groups of them, stripped except for a loincloth, busy washing their shining, dusky bodies. After this, little brass jars are produced, from which oil is poured over them and rubbed in, Others, having finished this, are industriously combing their long black locks and bushy beards. Others, again, are making chapati, a species of pancake, in broad, shallow metal bowls. I taste one and find it excellent. Other groups of these dark warriors are sitting outside their little tents, smoking hookahs. All the men we meet salute punctiliously. Nearby are the white officers' tents, quite luxurious affairs. The whole place is delightful and looks almost like a riverside picnic, only everything is very orderly. As to the carts before mentioned, these are most ingenious. They are little two-wheeled affairs with a pole, like the old-fashioned curricle. Each is drawn by two small mules, not larger than ponies. Wonderful little fellows they are. Bred in northern India, Kashmir, and Tibet, I believe. Lord, how they work! They can pull almost anything, and they are so sure-footed and the little carts so evenly balanced that they can go about anywhere. It is a very interesting sight to see a convoy of these carts on the move, with their dusky, turbaned drivers sitting crouched up like monkeys on them, chanting some weird oriental ballad as they go, to the accompaniment of jingling harness. They are well looked after, too, these little mules. The drivers have had the care of them for years, perhaps, and their training is perfect. They look as fat as butter, and their coats shine like satin, very different from the hulking, ugly brutes that we have brought, American. They appear to be quite docile, and it is not necessary to have eyes in the back of your head when walking through their lines. I hear today that Major Barlow, to whom I was talking a few days ago in the trenches, has been badly wounded. One airplane has been very busy going out and coming back after short trips over the enemy's positions, followed by little puffs of bursting shrapnel when over their lines. The weather is perfect. 
Swiftsure and Queen Bess are now up the coast off the gully and are giving the left slope of Achi Baba and Krithia something to write home about. Torpedo destroyers are also joining in, and later the shore batteries take up the tune, and a bombardment similar to yesterday's starts preparatory to another battle. French 75s are barking away incessantly, and the bombardment is increasing in ferocity. New Zealanders are on the extreme left, then the 87th Brigade, next the 88th and 86th, or what is left of it, with the new Territorial Lancashire Fusiliers. Next come Australians, up on the hill by the White House, and on the extreme right, down to the edge of the Straits, the French. The line forms the shape of a shallow basin, the extremes resting on ground on either side of the peninsula. Through glasses at six o'clock I can see little figures running here and there on the high ground to the extreme right beyond the White House, now taking cover, now running forward, now disappearing on the other side. Ugly black shells rain amongst them and make a sickening sight. Turkish artillery appears to have increased considerably. Their shells rain all along our line, but none come on the beaches. All their artillery seems concentrated on our trenches. Again and again I see shells fall right in the middle of men who seem to be running. It is difficult to discern whether they are Turks or our men. I watch till the sight sickens me, and then I come away and arrange the rations to go up tonight, seeing the boxes roped up onto the pack mules or loaded onto the army transport carts. Two shells come near the beach, bursting with a black explosion in the air. Rifle fire goes on all night, but artillery dies down to fitful shelling. I hear that the net result of today's work is a gain of 500 yards, but that we have had great casualties. May 10th. Another most perfect day. All day yesterday, wounded were being evacuated as fast as possible. I now have to feed a brigade of Australians as well as my own brigade. I go up in the morning to their positions and for the first time get amongst them at close quarters. They have honeycombed the land near the white pillars with dugouts and have their headquarters at the White House on the hill. I see Captain Milne, their supply officer, and arrange matters with him. Our veterinarian Hislop and Sergeant Evans ride today with me, and we call at our brigade headquarters, now moved some few hundred yards behind their former position of a week ago, dug in a dry nook surrounded by trees, in a spot similar to a park of some large house in England. Their mess is simply a table of earth dug out by digging a square trench in which they sit, the center of the square being the table. There I find Colonel Williams Thompson and our new brigade major. I find that Feston was wounded yesterday while standing up in the trench in which I was talking to him the day before. Troops have found little springs and an ancient well, and so there is now a plentiful supply of water, and beautiful water too. In addition to Australians and the Punjabis encamped by the White Pillars, there are now Lancashire Fusiliers and Manchesters, the whole making one large camp of dugouts and trenches in orderly rows. It is fortunate that there is very little rain, otherwise the place would be a quagmire in five minutes. The Punjabis have built walls of mud and stone shell-proof shelters and are much handier at making themselves comfortable than our white troops. 
In the battle of the 8th, the Australians showed marvelous dash and individual pluck, not a straggler among them. Many deeds of great heroism were performed, and if a man gets an honor in their ranks, it will be one worth having. It is difficult to pick up exactly our front-line trench, and the quartermaster of the Worcesters the other day, finding a trench containing Munsters, inquired as to the whereabouts of his regiment, and was told that they were on in front. He walked on, and, finding nothing, came back. He was told that if he walked much further, he wouldn't arf get Worcesters. He was walking bang into the enemy's lines. Two aeroplanes are up today, circling energetically around the slopes of Achi Baba. Our batteries are busy, steadily plugging shells into the enemy's lines. An aeroplane is up, and the Turks are trying to pot it. Aeroplane sails up and down Turkish lines unconcerned. The curious thing about being under shell fire is that when a shell comes near you, you duck down and take cover, and immediately after resume your conversation. This morning, at the White Pillars, I said to the Australian officer, What is your strength? He said, Look out! Down we bobbed, a sound like tearing linen, ending in a shriek and a bang. Up we jump, and he calmly continues the conversation. Met Duff, my honorable artillery company pal again. So funny seeing him. Both of us ride together. Last time we rode together was at Goring, side by side, in B-sub A battery. Never thought we should be officers riding side by side on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Have a delightful bathe off W Beach today. The water crowded with bathers, French and English. By far the best bathing I have ever had in my life. May 11th. Rather cloudy today, and much cooler. Rode up to Brigade Headquarters with Hislop, to the same place as yesterday. Saw Australian Supply Officer. As I was talking to him, a few shells came over our way, not singly, but by twos and threes. I have got used to the sound of them passing through the air now, and know by the sound whether they are coming my way or not. Again, as yesterday, the Australian officer gave me the warning, look out, and we dived for a dugout. The Australians get awfully amused when they see people doing these dives out of the way of shells, and it certainly does look humorous. My brigade is moving back to the reserve trenches for a rest, and they need it. The reserve trenches are those by the White Pillars, occupied at present by the Lancashires and the Manchesters, territorials. I meet General Damod and his staff, including the officer that I knew on the Arcadian. They are all riding. He stops me, asking if I have seen General Parrish, the Australian general. I express regret that I have not, at which he appears annoyed. One of his staff asks me to point out 29th Division headquarters, and I direct him to Hill 138 in rear of us. I point out the Australian camp to the general, who goes off then to inquire for General Parrish. I leave Hislop, who has another job on, and start to ride back across country, having a few jumps over the new rest trenches. I am overtaken by an officer who is the adjutant of one of the Lancashire Fusiliers' territorial battalions, the sixth, I think. Lord Rochdale is in command. He tells me that they have been in Egypt training for a long time and cursing their luck at being seemingly sidetracked with not much opportunity of seeing any active service. Suddenly they were wired for, 
and in twenty-four hours left Egypt for here. On arrival, they marched straight up to the trenches, and at 5.30 p.m. the next day, went into action, and lost heavily. As I was being told all this, I heard a most weird noise, as if the whole of the sky were being rent in two, ending in a deafening explosion, and looking over my shoulder in surprise, I see, twenty-five yards to my left, over a little mound, a spout of smoke and earth and stones flung into the air. I say to my companion, I think we had better trot, which we do. It is strange, but my old horse did not seem to worry much when the shell burst. It must have been a six-inch, and it is the first big one that I have had near me so far, and may it be the last. Its sound is unlike that of any shell I have heard up to now, and far noisier in its flight. I think that if they chuck these sort about on the beach, I shall be jumpy in a very short time. I only hope the beaches are out of range, or will be before very long. Evidently they have a new gun. At times I feel very optimistic, looking forward confidently to our trip over Achibaba. At other times, Achibaba looks so forbidding that I feel we shall all spend the rest of our lives hanging on to this tiny bit of land. I can canter to brigade headquarters from the beach in fifteen minutes and walk from there to the front line in another fifteen, and that gives an idea of how far we are on. I ride over to the aerodrome. We are fortunate in finding such a perfect one and over to V Beach, which the French have got into a much more ship-shape order than ours. I count seven battleships and seven destroyers up the entrance as far as Morto Bay, and the packet of woodbines is still off the Asiatic coast, and touches up Yenisher and Kumkali with ten-inch shells. From the high ground overlooking V Beach, the fleet at the entrance makes an imposing spectacle waiting for the army to open the gates of the straits before they dash through to the Marmora. The Goliath and Prince George fire odd shots now and again at Chanak. Late in the afternoon we get a few light shells over on W Beach, and a few men are slightly hit. In a little gully between W Beach and X Beach, preparations are being made to start a field bakery, and we are promised real bread in a few days. One of our mares has given birth to a foal. My mare, much to the mother's annoyance, is much interested. Our train is in camp now on the high ground on the left of W Beach, looking inland, and have made very good lines. All the men have built little shelters out of wagon covers, sailcloths, and tarpaulins, in rows opposite their horse lines, the whole looking like a well-ordered gypsy encampment. I made myself very unpopular there today by saying, You won't arf cop it in a day or so when John Turk finds you out. Saw General Hunter Weston making a tour of the beaches today. He appeared in very good spirits. Our trenches in the front line are now getting quite deep, and sand-bagged parapets are being rapidly built. The Gurkhas do not like trench warfare at all, and cause much anxiety to their white officers by continually popping their heads over to have a look round. The Turkish line has crept much nearer to ours since the last battle, and they are also rapidly digging in. 
A party of Gurkhas were ordered out to capture a machine gun in an emplacement on an advanced knoll in front of the Turkish right and our left. The gun was captured, and one little Gurkha brought back a Turk's head, and it was difficult to make him part with it. Heavy firing broke out at eleven o'clock tonight and lasted an hour or two. May 12th. It is raining hard this morning, and very cold as well. I visit the Senegalese camp at V Beach. They are physically very well-built men, well up to the average of six feet in height. They are as black as coal with shiny faces, like niggers on Brighton Beach, and very amusing in their manners. At the last battle they charged magnificently with horrible yelling, frightening the poor Turk out of his wits. They are equipped with wide, square-bladed knives about fourteen inches long. Wireless news is now typed and published nearly every day. Today we hear that the Lusitania has been sunk and that Greece and Italy are likely to come in. An extract from a Turkish paper says that we have been pushed into the sea and almost in the same paragraph that the foolish British will persist in attacking. We have quite a comfortable little house now at our supply depot on the beach, made out of boxes with a sailcloth overhead. Hardly any firing today. Shore batteries remarkably quiet, but fleet firing intermittently. Afternoon. Go to brigade headquarters in the afternoon and find the rest camp at the White Pillars an absolute quagmire of mud, many of the dugouts being half full of water. Two sixty-pounder guns are now in position on the cliff to the west of W Beach, and this afternoon I go up to have a look at them firing. Their target is at a range of 9,600 yards, well up on the left shoulder of Achi Baba, and an aeroplane is up observing for them. The flame of the explosion shoots out some feet from the muzzle, and from the breech also, and makes a terrific roar, which echoes all around the ships lying off. The sound plane ducks and drakes from one ship to another. One can see with the naked eye the shell hitting its target on Achibaba. Our fleet gets busy again, and later the batteries on shore join in, and a bombardment starts. At 6.45 p.m. the Gurkhas come into action on the left, and quite a big battle develops. We can just see the men through glasses. Crowds from the beach flock up to the high ground to have a look, getting into direct line with the 60-pounders, much to the gunner officer's annoyance, and police finally are posted to keep them out of the way. A shell exploding with a black burst over our heads, but very high, causes the watching crowd to scatter in a somewhat amusing fashion. Gregory and I move forward to a trench in front and look at the battle through glasses. All I can see now is a host of bursting shells on the left and intermittent shelling on the right and center. Suddenly another of these black devils of shells bursts over our heads and covers me with small hot cinders which sting. We go back to dinner whilst the battle is still going on. May 13th. At two o'clock this morning I was awakened by a most curious noise. It sounded like thousands of men off V Beach crying and shouting loudly. Shortly after I see searchlights, about eight of them, flashing from the battleships at the entrance to the straits. The noise goes on for about half an hour and then suddenly ceases. 
I stand for a few minutes puzzling what it is, and watching the searchlights still wielding their beams of light around, and then turn in again. At 6 a.m. I am told that the Goliath has been torpedoed and sunk. A Turkish destroyer came down the straits and got her clean amidships, and she sank in half an hour. I hear that half the crew is lost. The destroyer, if seen at all, disappeared in the darkness. Poor old Goliath! And it was only the other day that I was watching her in action. We now move our depot upon the high land on the left of W Beach and further inshore, and divide it into four, one for divisional troops and one for each brigade. While on this job at 7 a.m., I hear the sound of bagpipes coming nearer and nearer. It is the first time that I have heard bagpipes since I was on the Southland with the King's Own Scottish Borderers. Sure enough, it is the King's Own Scottish Borderers, all that are left of them, some three hundred strong out of the strength of eleven hundred that they landed with from the Southland. They come swinging down to the beach with one officer at their head, and to see them marching well behind the inspiring skirl of bagpipes almost brings tears to my eyes. Three hundred left out of a crack Scottish battalion, average service of each man five years. I ride up to brigade again this morning and find all very quiet on the front. I hear that we were successful in yesterday's and in last night's battle, and that the Gurkhas have taken a large, important bluff on our extreme left on the other side of the gully. I bathe in the afternoon, and while enjoying the pleasure of doing side-strokes with the sea having a slight swell on, I hear that terrible rending noise of a six-inch shell, similar to those that dropped near me the other morning, which bursts with a bang on the back of the beach. My bathing is promptly brought to an end, and I go back to my bivvy. I feel safer there somehow, but why I should I cannot explain. But all who have been under shell-fire will bear me out in the statement that even if one is in a tent, one feels more confident under shell-fire than if in the bare open, with the exception, of course, of when one is caught under it, going to some definite place or finishing some urgent definite work. Then one's mind is concentrated on getting to that place or finishing that job. But sitting down on the beach, hearing the heavens being torn asunder by an unseen hand, as it were, the noise of the tearing developing into a mighty hiss and shriek, ending in a great explosion which shakes the earth under your feet and echoes far away into the distance, followed by the whine of flying pieces of hot metal, sometimes very near your head, is a most disconcerting and unnerving position in which to find oneself. For the benefit of those who have been so fortunate as to never have heard a shell burst in anger, a slight description of it may prove interesting. The first thing one hears is a noise like the rending of linen, or perhaps the rush of steam describes it better. This gets louder and louder, and then as the projectile nears the end of its journey, one hears a whine, half-whistle, half-scream, and then the explosion. If it is very near, there is an acrid smell in the air. One's feelings are difficult to describe. You duck your head instinctively. You feel absolutely helpless. 
wondering where the thing will burst, and as you hear the explosion, a quick wave of feeling sweeps over you as you murmur, Thank heaven, not this time. Unfortunately, they have got the range of our beach accurately now, and are beginning to do real damage. The little shells that we had earlier did not frighten us much, but these beastly things make us all jumpy. Several men have been hit today, and about a dozen horses and half a dozen mules killed. All are taking cover as best they can. If one hits this bivouac where I am now riding, this diary comes to an untimely end. I wish our airplanes could find this gun. It appears so close up to us, and if it takes into its head to fling these beastly things about all day long, this beach will be untenable. A damned fool near me has just said, If they go on much longer, they will hurt somebody. I chuck a book at his head. In France they do get a chance of rest behind the scenes now and again, but here it is one constant lookout, and down we bob. After a bout of shelling, one imagines shells coming. For instance, when an airplane sails over, people duck their heads, as it sounds just like a shell. And then also there are so many ships in harbor that one is constantly hearing the noise of escaping steam, sounding just like a shell. One of our men has just had the side of his boot torn away. Fortunately, however, only the skin of his foot was grazed and bruised. Fifty horses have now been killed, and three men killed and a few wounded. Had to go on duty at depot at head of beach. Shelling stopped. Finished duty 645. Shell immediately came, and I fell flat behind some hay. After that a few more came over and then stopped. End of section 6